a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of the Lord, recorded in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. When I began planning out sermons on Matthew, um, you know, just taking them chapter by chapter, uh, I, I really had no intention that I would be preaching on this passage and this topic on the Sunday between the Republican and Democratic presidential uh, conventions. Um, that wasn't my plan. Um, there is an awkwardness when speaking about issues of politics in the church anyway, and in this church there's an awkwardness because uh, by my guesstimate, I think you're about evenly split between Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. Um, and particularly during this election cycle, there is an awkwardness because both of the two major political parties in the United States this year have nominated two of the candidates who, just in public opinion polls, have some of the highest negative ratings of any candidate in, in history, which means that pretty much no matter who takes office uh, six months from now as the next president of the United States of America, uh, there are uh, some people who are going to be really unhappy if it's one candidate, and then there are some who are going to be really unhappy if it's another candidate, and... And then there's Marianne Noland. Um, I don't know if you uh, read her obituary. I believe we have a, a slide of that, if we could get that first pick. Um, this was from the Richmond Times-Dispatch last May. Noland, comma, Mary Ann Alfred, faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Mary Ann Noland of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God... <laughs> on Sunday, May 15th, 2016, at the age of 68, born in Danville, Virginia, Mary dot, dot, dot. Um, it's particularly amusing given that no child 
would print that obituary unless Marianne Noland specifically wrote her own <laughs> obituary. That's good, thank you. Um, seriously, though, uh, um, I hope you can avoid her choice and find a better way this year. Um, as we look at an election cycle, as Facebook uh, feeds start to fill up with uh, statements about this candidate or another advocating for or against something or another, how does Jesus speak into our lives, specifically as Christians, as the church in the United States in 2016? What did he say during his earthly ministry that might speak into our lives now? Because that's what he is speaking to us by his Spirit even now. We're going to read Matthew chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 15 in your pew Bible. Uh, It's page 1535, 22nd chapter of the gospel, according to the tax collector turned follower of Jesus named Matthew, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, that's the political class. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us then, what is your opinion, Jesus? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Before we continue reading, understand that's a trap, because if Jesus says, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, The Roman army was occupying Jerusalem at that very hour, and Jesus would lose the support of the crowds. And yet if Jesus said, no, do not pay taxes to Caesar, then they would certainly have him crucified for sedition. So tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knowing their evil intent, said this, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Well, Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. Jesus has two things to tell us this morning from this passage. The first is to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. What does it mean to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's? It's traditionally translated render to Caesar in in English. The NIV translation just says give to Caesar. The Greek more properly means give back to Caesar. Return to Caesar that which is actually not yours, but Caesar's. Uh, You look at the coin. We'll get there later. But the coin had Caesar's face on it. What does it mean? 
to give back to Caesar what is rightly Caesar's. I think at this most foundational level, Jesus is saying, you've got to give up your control of Caesar. You've got to stop trying to decide, do we boycott our taxes or do we give our taxes? And simply say, Caesar has authority. This authority is from God. I am not going to try to control him, manipulate him, or twist his arm. I'm not going to try to use Caesar to manipulate, control, or twist somebody else's arm. Jesus is saying, you've got to give up control of this matter because God has not given you the authority to determine what rate your taxes shall be. He gives that authority to Caesar. He gives that authority to the government. This means not boycotting the government because of excess or even abuse. Jesus was speaking to Jewish people who were under occupation by Roman armies, and he was telling them that when Caesar says, pay this money, you've got to pay for your own occupation. And as Christians, you're not to try to control that or to force it be to be otherwise. Jesus is saying, I want you to stop trying to control everybody. Stop trying to wrestle control of your government. As Christians, your job is not to influence the world by getting your guys on top and your guys in power and your people in control and enforcing everybody else to obey God's law outwardly. Jesus is saying, that is not how I have trained you. That is not how I have been your example. But rather, giving up control, you're to fight not over the crown, but over the towel. Stop trying to change people from the outside in. Jesus isn't telling you to abdicate your civic responsibilities and to retreat to a commune in Utah, but he is telling us to give up control. It's the government's coin. It has their face on it, and when they request it, then give it back to them. You're not going to save the world. Government isn't going to save the world. Surely where there are victims, yes, Jesus says, I want you to stand with victims and to protect them. But don't think you can control other people. You're just going to make them mad at you, and they'll have good reason for being mad at you. Render to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Whether you like what Caesar is going to do with it, or whether you loathe Caesar's evil intentions. You don't have to try to control everything. You've got to let go. You've got to give up control. To render to Caesar means giving up control of Caesar. And it also means giving up control of your money. That was the issue here. Do we boycott Rome or do we pay the taxes, the tribute that pays for our occupation? It was a question of taxation by a government that frankly was corrupt. And the Romans certainly could be brutal. And yet, at the same time, even as Jewish residents of Palestine as inhabitants, if not citizens, of the Roman Empire. The Jews in Palestine, the disciples, the early Christians, they benefited from Roman taxation and from Roman government in certain ways. The Romans built roads. They gave the freedom to travel throughout the empire that fostered trade and commerce that, that brought about what we now know as the Pax Romana, They protected them from invading armies. They built Roman aqueducts that brought them water, Roman baths and latrines that provided a a basic level of sanitation in even the most overcrowded of cities like Jerusalem. They brought criminal justice that was not perfect, but it was better than nothing. And Jesus is saying that Caesar, the government, has the right to demand that we pay for those services. Render unto Caesar 
that which is Caesar's. Giving up control and giving up money. St. Paul says in Romans 13, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. remember hearing another pastor talk about the changes in the U.S. tax code almost 30 years ago. I was just a kid at the time, a teenager. But in 1987, there was this massive overhaul of the Internal Revenue Service and the tax code. And before 1987, some of you remember doing your taxes long, long ago. You could claim as many dependents as you wanted on your taxes. You just had to list one thing. You had to list them by name. Until 1987. And then in 1987, the IRS began requiring a second thing when you list your dependents while you're doing your taxes. You had to list your dependents by name, and you also had to list each dependents, what? Social security number. The first year that took effect, 1987, the United States lost 7 million children. They vanished. (laughs) Possible alien abductions, I don't know, but $3 billion in revenue was reclaimed. Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, because our hearts will hold on to every last penny, lie, cheat, and steal if necessary, if we feel it's in the best interest of our future, our comfort, our, our family. If you owe taxes, pay them. Giving up control, giving up tax dollars, and giving honor. Jesus implies that there are honors which are due to people in governmental authority, even when they're unbelieving, as the Romans were, even if they're corrupt. It's what Paul says in Romans 13 when he says, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. It's what Peter uh, uh, wrote that we read about when he said, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority, regardless of whether the government governs well or poorly. And and politicians were notorious in the ancient world, even more so, far more so than today. There's a a quote that's probably wrongly attributed to Seneca, though it certainly uh, describes his perspective, even if it's not an exact quote. It's in Edward Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He says this, says, The masses consider all religions equally true. The philosophers consider all religions equally false. And the politicians consider all religions equally useful. You think of Peter and Paul, both, uh, you know, in the 50s and the 60s AD, uh, instructing the Christians to pay their taxes, to honor the emperor, to to honor the king. Uh, How crazy that was in that It was under the Emperor Nero, within a decade, that both Peter and Paul would be executed. Nero, who, you know, tied Christians to the top of posts and lit them on fire in order to light his garden at night, who played the violin while Rome burned. It's the very rulers that the apostles were saying, I want you to honor where honor is appropriate. Not because of the men not because they are honorable, but because they are using the authority of Christ, the authority of God, from whom all authority in heaven and earth now derives. And if they are not honorable men, nevertheless, the office which they hold is one of honor. Give honor to those to whom honor is due. 
You know, are you willing to do what you're told when somebody in authority tells you to do something that you don't think is wise? It's one of those all-or-nothing sorts of questions because you're going to honor them if they're telling you to do what you think you should do because that's just serving yourself. You don't really know whether you have love in your heart and humility in your heart. You don't know whether you have a submission to God or not, whether you're actually honoring those with God-given authority, whether it's in your family or in your church or, in this case, in the government or in your workplace. You don't know if you're honoring them until they tell you to do something that you consider utterly foolish. And then how do you think about them? How do you talk about them? And what is your heart do. You know, can you say, okay, this wasn't my decision. Had this been my decision, I would have decided differently. But you know, God has given this decision to someone else. It's their authority, and I want to honor them. And if, if they've chosen poorly, then I'm going to trust that God is big enough to make things right and to redeem the wrong, or at the very least, to give me grace to suffer without arguing or complaining. Either way, though, I know this wasn't my call to make. I wasn't the one with authority. I'm not the one with the responsibility. And the one with them, you know, uh, to carry that kind of authority, that's a, heavy, uh, that's a heavy burden to have to shoulder. And I want them to know that I support them. You see, I let it go. And if you can't do that, then you're going to find yourself becoming manipulative and negative and critical and controlling. And you're going to grasp harder and harder for some kind of leverage And then you're going to become bitter. And those around you are going to see it, and they're going to feel the critical spirit. And they may just assume you've always been that way, but beneath this desperate need for control, this inability to honor civil authorities with whom you disagree, underneath the surface is a spirit of lawlessness that refuses to acknowledge the authority even when Jesus is speaking, standing before you by his Holy Spirit, saying, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. A quote from John Wesley, Anglican minister, revivalist, founder of Methodism. In 1774, John Wesley said this. He said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them of three things. One, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Certainly God in his word doesn't make this unlimited Uh, there are proper limits. Everything doesn't belong to Caesar. Caesar can't demand everything. You see it in the Old Testament. When, When Caesar, in this case the Pharaoh of Egypt told the Jewish midwives that, that, that there are too many Jews. We need to stop this. Whenever a Jewish baby boy is being born, I want you to kill the child before the birth is complete. And the Jewish midwives absolutely refused. They said, you do not have authority to command us to kill the innocent. And so they lied through their teeth and they came up with a story about how Jewish women shoot the baby out so fast by the time it lands on the floor, he's already 16 years old. There's nothing we can do. Sorry, Pharaoh. And God praised them for that, because Pharaoh didn't have that authority. In the New Testament, you see it in the book of Acts, when 
the early Christians, the apostles, are commanded to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And, and they disobey those in authority, saying, you know, decide for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you rather than God. Yeah. But government does have legitimate authority. You know, even just looking at the Old Testament law, the Mosaic legislation, it doesn't apply today. Uh, it was the case law just for Israel, and the New Testament does not apply it today. It's not something we're trying to apply to everywhere, but there are, there are moral principles that are universal human norms there in which government, even in ancient Israel, was, was there to secure a fair system of criminal justice. Pro, there were laws prohibiting partiality or favoritism, making sure that the rich don't get better justice than the poor, making sure crime was, was dealt with, and making sure there was restitution whenever possible. There were laws in the Old Testament law to ensure equal opportunity and social justice, a year of jubilee every 50 years in which everybody's student loans were forgiven and everybody got released from jail and everybody went back to the ancestral lands in a tribal society so that the rich could get richer and the poor could get poorer, but only for 50 years. And the sins of the fathers might be passed down for three or maybe four generations, but never for a fifth. Because God had a heart for structural justice in society. And so, even in the Old Testament, there were laws requiring that, that farmers not, not plow and not harvest all the way to the edge of their fields, but allow the edges of their fields, the hard parts, the hilly parts, allow them to go unharvested so that the poor could walk through the countryside and harvest that hardest-to-harvest grain for their own sake so that they could live so that the poor would have provision. There were special legal protections for the disadvantaged and the vulnerable, specifically for the disabled in Leviticus 19, for the widows, for the poor, for orphans, unwanted children, for migrants, for refugees, and the foreign-born, requiring, laws requiring employers to compensate their employees in a fair manner and establishing you know, fair business practices with uniform weights and, and measures. There were, in the Old Testament, laws to protect public health and safety. Everybody's roof was flat back then. Uh, in a desert, you can do that because you don't have a lot of water pooling up there. And the roof was a living space. And there's a law in the Old Testament requiring that your roof have a parapet around it. That's about a three-foot-high wall all the way around because God was so concerned that they build their buildings in such a way as to promote and preserve the sanctity of human life, which is sacrosanct and cannot be negotiated and cannot be compromised. The, the law requiring you to keep children from walking off the edge of a roof or the blind or the elderly or the infirm. There were laws to preserve species. You could take the, mom, the baby birds, but you couldn't take the mom with them. Uh, providing legal protections for domestic animals, like not muzzling the ox while it's treading out grain. If you're going to use the ox, you've got to let the ox eat what it is that he's working on. And there were concerns about national defense, so long as it doesn't glorify war, as David was forbidden from building the temple of the Lord because he was a man of many wars. And government in the Old Testament has authority to tax us in order to fund these sorts of agendas. So, Greg, who are you telling us to vote for? I'm not. Whenever I figure out who I'm going to vote for, I can guarantee I will not tell you. It's not my job. I don't have that authority. Um, 
But what is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us to have the right heart toward Caesar as we engage in the political sphere, as we vote, as we participate, to let the gospel shape us and to give us willing hearts. I have a second slide here. This is a letter that uh, George H.W. Bush left on the Oval Office desk as he left office on the last day of his presidency. It's addressed to Bill, Bill Clinton. Uh, And he says this, he says, Dear Bill, January 20th, 1993, Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt a few years ago. I know you will feel that too. And I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck. George, from the man who he had just beaten and beaten badly in an election to the man who, by the time he read that, was going to be his president, honoring those to whom honor is due, giving to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And the other point, Jesus says, is to render unto God that which is God's. What does it mean to give to God that which is rightly God's? It means giving absolute and total allegiance to God, your Father. You might not have picked up on the rebuke that Jesus meets, uh, this, with which Jesus meets this, this trap. See, these men, where are they in this passage? They're in the temple courts, in the temple of the Lord, in the presence of his, 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 his majesty himself, here in the courts of the temple of Yahweh. And Jesus casually asks, oh, do you have one of those coins on you? Let me see that. And they give give him a coin. And you need to realize what was on this coin. We have a slide here. This is a... There's some debate among scholars as to what exactly the denarius was, but this is more likely, uh, uh, more than likely, the coin um, uh, that would have used. It's the tribute penny. And on the left, you see Tiberius Caesar. He's the emperor. And on the right uh, is his, on the back is, is his mom, Livia. Um, yeah, issues. Uh, but uh, honorably so. I mean, uh, his mom, Livia, is, is on the back dressed as the Roman goddess Pax or Peace. And uh, as you look at this coin, um, you know, it's uh, uh, on the front, it says, if you look at the bottom right corner and circle around, it says T for T-I for Tiberius, Caesar, Divi Augusti. Uh, uh, then on the other side, you know, Filius Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the, the divine Augustus. And on the back it says Pontifex Maximus, great high priest. So Jesus, at this, he asked, so do you have any, one of these things on you? What's it look like again? I can't remember. Show me that. Uh, oh, you got one in your pocket. In your pocket, you have a medallion of the emperor that says that he is the son of God. And on the other side, it says that he is the great high priest, and there's his mom. Now, 
you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a graven image of any god. You shall not carry it around in your pocket, and you shall not bring it into the temple of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just the fact that they had this on them, that they were touching it and holding it, was a violation of the Jewish law. Not only that, a violation of the commandments themselves, including the greatest commandment, to have no allegiance before your allegiance to the only God and great high priest, the Lord, the God of Israel, and his mom. It's a rebuke. Jesus is saying, if you were really rendering to God that which is God's, you would have never brought that thing into this holy place. Your allegiance to the Lord seems to be lacking. To render to God that which is God's is to render him, render unto him absolute allegiance and yet also to find your identity in him and in him alone. It means finding your significance in who he is and what he has done for you as the God of Abraham who has rescued you from bondage, who has atoned for your sin. Uh, See, some of us, we can be tempted to find our identity in our race or in our social class or in our career or in what we do or in our relationships and and what other people think about us. And some of us are tempted to find our identity in our political perspective, in our party, in our movement. And when you do that, when that's where your ultimate identity is found, that you're of a particular you know, political perspective or social viewpoint, be it on the right or on the left or in the middle or anywhere around the edge, uh, when you find your identity there, then you begin to find your righteousness there. And you begin to demonize those who don't have that same identity. You begin to view them as the enemy. You begin to assume the worst about them. You might be tempted to speak negatively about them, to dishonor them, to disrespect the image of God in them. And what develops in us is a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion, a judgment, a pride. And and yet when you find your identity instead in the Lord God who made us all in his image, then what you see in your fellow person is another image bearer of of God. And when you find your identity in what the Lord has done for you as your rescuer, who when you were his enemy, he died for you, he washed you of your sins, when you see that, then you're in a position where you're not in a position to criticize anybody else, no matter how greatly their perspective may differ from your own, because you know, I am just a horrible rotten sinner, and it's a broken world full of pain and despair, and yet the Lord has washed me and he has loved me through no righteousness of my own. He has shown me mercy. And then I can look at somebody else whose perspective is very different from my own. And I can see them as a, as a sinner, just like me, broken, just like me in a world of, of despair and pain and suffering, just like me. And the fact that I was rescued doesn't mean I'm in a position to think anything negatively about them. See, when you build your identity on what the Lord has done for you, it transforms you. You become free to love, free to respond to Christ's authority as your resurrected Lord. It's it's why the denomination that this church is a part of is not called the Presbyterian Church of America. It's called the Presbyterian Church in America. Because we are not owned by any political entity, any nation state, any culture, or any political perspective. We're owned by Jesus. We are his church. And we happen to be his church in the United States, in America. 
But we're not America's church. We're not American Christians. We're Christians in America who are closely bound to every other Christian everywhere on earth, far more closely than we are to other Americans. To render unto God that which is God's. I remember when we got the American flag out of the sanctuary many years ago. It had been there forever. The American flag over here, the Christian flag over there, and... uh, I think it was about a week after Russ Sloan passed away. He was our last World War II vet. Um, that it just disappeared. And uh, George had wanted it gone for decades, but didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so once, once the coast was clear, it was gone. And it wasn't because America is such a horrible place. It's not that we're the worst country on earth. Uh, you know, that's, that's up to God to, to decide. It's, it's that we don't, uh, we're not owned by America. And what happens in America politically will have great ramifications to people here and in all the earth, but our hope is not found in our country. Our hope is found in our Savior. It's where we find our allegiance, our identity, and our hope. To render unto God that which is God's is to allow him to set the priorities supremely. His will must be done. Jesus calling us to a a life of intentional sacrifice for the glory of God, a readiness to do anything, go anywhere, love anyone, love them however he wants us to love them, whatever he wants with no fine print and no footnotes and no reservations and no qualifications and no exceptions. God, whatever you want, I will do it, and I'm telling you that before you tell me what to do, because my allegiance is to you, Jesus says, give to God that which is God's. How is it possible to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to give to God what is God's? Uh, It's possible because of what Jesus was doing, even when he told them to pay their taxes. Jesus was going to his own death, and though the Pharisees and the Herodians were all certainly plotting how they were going to do that, they didn't have the authority to kill Jesus. Only the Romans had the authority to kill Jesus. And in telling us to pay our taxes, Jesus was telling us, I want you to fund my execution because I have to go up to Jerusalem. I have to suffer and I have to die. I have to bear your sins for you because you can't bear them on your own. If you bear your sins, they will crush you and destroy you and leave you very, very far from my Father. But it is my will and my Father's will that I carry your burden for you, that I carry it all the way to the cross, that I allow it to crush me instead of you because I love you and I am unwilling to consider life without you. I will die rather than let go of you. I will absorb the wrath of God for humanity's sin rather than you absorbing the wrath for your own sin because I am going to carry your burden for you because, look at the coin, Jesus is saying, there is a true Son of God and I am the Son of God and I am the great high priest and here in this temple, I am the temple and not only am I the priest and the temple, but I am the sacrifice as well. I am the one who lays down his life for you. When you are my enemies, I die for you, he says. Scott Saul says this way. He says, when the grace of Jesus sinks in, we will be among the least offended people in the world. Friends, if you have no righteousness of your own, then nothing is going to offend you. 
You're not going to be horrified. You're not going to point the finger. You're not going to be disgusted because you know that you were rescued when you were God's enemy. Saul says this. He says, imagine what it would look like for the church to rekindle what has always been true about salty Christianity, that attractional value to sinners, to be sure that when we offend, it's the kinds of people who got offended by Jesus, namely the smug religious insiders, and and to be sure that those who are drawn to us are the same kind of folks who are drawn to Jesus, namely tax collectors like Matthew and sinners. Jesus, our great high priest, our temple, the Son of God, the sacrifice. When Tim Keller was asked a number of years ago when he was in St. Louis, he was at a book signing, and he was asked what he thinks the most powerful effect of the gospel is on people in politics when the gospel of Jesus really grips their heart. And he said this. He said yeah, his church also is about even between Republicans and Democrats, but he said the most powerful thing he has seen when the gospel grips the heart of a politician is that they are willing to reach across the aisle to work with their political opponents. They don't have to have the perfect bill that makes everything perfect. They don't have to shoot for the moon and end up with nothing. Rather, they can, they can be okay with small incremental changes, working with their opponents to find steps that will actually be constructive and can help us build a more just and equitable society. They don't have to look for the rhetorical bombshell in order to prove a point. They don't need to prove themselves. Jesus proved himself for them. And they can find common cause and make compromises for the sake of humanity. See, the gospel frees us to see our own shortcomings because I'm just a rescued sinner, the worst sinner in the room, rescued by Jesus. And so I can be shown my own shortcomings and not have to get defensive because it's okay. I'm loved. I'm a loved sinner. I'm I'm forgiven. And it also frees me up to see in my opponent the image of God preserved in them. Those of you on the political left, this week I want you to be able to name five honorable virtues of your political opponents on the right. And those of you on the political right, I want you this week to come up with five honorable, God-glorifying virtues of your opponents on the political left. Because that's what the gospel frees us to do. It frees us to break down our us category and expand our them category. It it frees us to stop thinking that we're the moral majority and instead, as Saul says, to become a life-giving minority devoted to the common good, embracing the the honorable values of the left and the right and, and rejecting the vices of both. This means thinking of ourselves as beneath our neighbors, as their servants, as their staff, as Jesus himself thinks of himself as our servant, as our staff, as he washes our feet from a position below us. He influences our heart so that we then can take a position below our neighbors, below the right, below the left, the position of servitude and humility to wash their feet and to influence society from below. It's what Jesus did from us. He's the Son of God, the great high priest, the sacrifice, a crown not of gold and rubies, but a crown of thorns, leading not the way the Gentiles do, but as a servant and Lord of love. I've got one last picture here. The uh, woman on the left there is uh, 
Emma Gray Daniel. Each night for 24 years, Emma Gray Daniel, or Emma Daniel Gray, sorry, would diligently clean the White House, particularly the Oval Office and Executive Suite. When she came to the president's chair every night, she worked the midnight shift. She would pause, cleaning materials in hand. She'd lay her hand on the president's chair, and she would say a prayer for him. The prayers asked for blessings, for wisdom, for safety for each of the six presidents she served. Mrs. Gray took great pride in her work. She traveled every day by public transit. She came by bus from her house in northwest Washington, to the residence of one of the most powerful men in the world. Her official title was charwoman from the time she started uh, in the White House in 1955. It wasn't just her work that got her the job, it was also her character. That nightly pause for prayer in the White House was in keeping with her habits of a lifetime. She was a member of Holy Trinity Worship Center International in Washington, D.C. She loved President Carter the most because she felt like he prayed a lot. Uh, She treasured a photograph of her shaking hands with him as well as an autographed picture of her with Rosalind Carter. Her daughter says this. She says, Mom was a, a lady. She was a Christian lady. And her pastor agreed. He said, she saw life through the eyes of promise. In a way, that's the way I'd put it. He added, you you can always look around and find reasons to be unhappy. But you couldn't be around her and not know what she believed. She always believed that there was God there. That you could grab on to him. That it would lift you out of any circumstance. And she was always able to do that. Emma Daniel Gray was born April 16th. 1914 in Edgefield, South Carolina, and she was raised by her grandfather who had been a slave. She said this, my grandpa was sold three times. He paid his boss's son, the owner's son, 20 cents to teach him to read. And when he could read, he loved the Ten Commandments so much that people in town began calling him Uncle Ten. When Mrs. Gray would visit her hometown, residents would usually ask, aren't you Uncle Ten's granddaughter? She learned early that you set the tone for your environment. Her pastor says that's why church was so important to her. She understood it to be the kind of institution that was conducive to what you needed spiritually and emotionally and sometimes even financially. This woman preached her own eulogy by the life that she lived. In her first year in the White House, August 1955, when 14-year-old Emmett Till was murdered by two white men, Emma Daniel Gray put her hand on the back of President Eisenhower's chair and she prayed. When Rosa Parks refused to leave her chair on a bus, Emma Daniel Gray prayed. In 1959, at the height of the Cuban Revolution, Emma Daniel Gray put her hand on the White House on the Oval Office chair and she prayed to the Lord in the name of Jesus few years later as the Berlin Wall was being built and then at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis and then as James Meredith was admitted into a segregated University of Mississippi every night this woman, this sister and mother in Jesus put her hand on the president's chair, six presidents and she interceded before the throne of God in the name of Jesus on his behalf. In 1963, when she learned that President Kennedy wouldn't be returning to the Oval Office, she prayed. 1964, with the Civil Rights Act, 
she prayed. During the years of the Vietnam War and with the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the 1972 terrorist attacks in the Munich Olympics, during the Watergate scandal, and and during the Iran hostage crisis, hers was the hand quite literally on the throne, the voice of intercession calling on her God to come in the name of Jesus, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, it didn't matter. Emma Daniel Gray knew she had a Savior. She knew her Savior would hear her prayers. She knew that she was loved and she was, yes, she was invisible. She was unnoticed, but Emma Daniel Gray, her hand was the hand that changed the world. This is the power of God, friends. When the gospel grips your heart, You can render unto God everything that is owed to God, absolute allegiance and blood-bought loyalty because you have a Savior. And then on that foundation, by the grace of God, you can render unto Caesar every last bit of honor and money and praise to which he is owed based on the one whose authority he holds. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, asking now that you would fulfill your promise to us, sinners, washed by your grace, that we too would cry out and pray. Pray, Lord, that we would pray not only for our president now, but for the president who will be taking office in six months' time, that you would give grace to him or to her, that you would give Christians the grace to honor him or her. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God, and great high priest who bore my sins in his body on the tree. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.